Well, certainly as we sing that song together, we're very much aware that the trials, the difficulties, the things that we face in a fallen world, in a broken world like ours, um, God uses those things to draw us ever nearer to him. And I appreciate being able to sing that together. So uh, we thank the Lord for that. And God's at work. God is doing things here amongst us at Clayton Valley Church. And some of the things uh, I just want to kind of draw attention to, one would be, you might notice outside as you came in from the parking lot, there is like a huge stack of rubble out there. And there's a reason for that. And that's because the, the Ed Wing is being revamped and, and, and improved greatly. And this, this is sort of the prerequisite to the Access for All project that we've got going on as well. Um, that, that's going to happen right over here. Um, with the nursery wing. But this is first. And so um, there's Paul Delancey, that smiling face, you know, and he's one of my favorite smiling faces around here, to be honest with you. So he's right over there, just to embarrass him more thoroughly. But uh, Paul's leading this effort. We're grateful for him. And so people were out there yesterday uh, essentially taking out their frustrations on life, the universe, and everything on the building. So they demoed, and they demoed, and they demoed. And so the stack of rubble you're seeing is the results of that. The bathrooms are gone. So if you need to use the restroom, don't use those. Because they're not there. They're gone. Uh, and uh, they're going to be um, you know, re- redone, refurbished, reconfigured. And that's going to be a, a beautiful thing to see. But what does that mean? Well, uh, this coming Saturday is a big day for us. There's a lot to do. And so we would really appreciate if you've got that time frame open of Saturday morning, come on by. Um, I think, is it 9 a.m. the start time? So 9 a.m., people will be here, and and you can be a part of uh, everything else that has to happen that day. And I'm not exactly sure how far they're going to get, but Paul's got all that worked out in his mind and on paper and with various sheets and graphs. So uh, you can talk to Paul about that. But but we would love to see you here and... uh, and we're going to see progress made. And that's exciting. And I love how our church family, we're not just sort of sitting back, letting others do it. This is very much a beautiful thing where we have sweat e- equity being poured into uh, the, the campus that God's given us so we can be good stewards with that. And so we're, we're, we're thrilled. So be here. We'll see you on Saturday. Um, we're now also excited to embark upon a new series, The Gospel of Luke. And uh, we're coming into this uh, time uh, because we really want to focus in on Jesus. Uh, who, is, who is he? What did he come to accomplish? What did he say about himself? What did he, in fact, do uh, during his time here on earth? And, and I think as we embark on this, there's, there's one thing that really becomes clear, and that is that um, there's a sense in which Luke is writing in order to help us understand what actual confidence gospel confidences in God. And, and the truth is, all of us battle different seasons and different times of misplaced confidence, don't we? Has that ever happened to you? You put confidence in something, and you're like, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And, you know, a, a very practical and, and a clear example of that would be as we consider a 39-year-old tourist named Mike. And he was on vacation in Thailand this past January, and he decided to try bungee jumping. He thought, how fun. And so he took a swan dive off of a 10-story high podium and starts crashing down. And his plan was, as he told, told people later, he said, my plan was to keep my eyes closed. And then when the bungee pulled back, as I was on my way back up, I'd open my eyes then. The problem for him was, that moment never happened. Because the line broke. Now, thankfully, he was over water. 
By the way, that didn't make it easy. <laughs> okay, so, oh, he was over water. No big deal. No, the way he described it, he goes, I landed on my left side, so the injuries are more severe there. And he told the, the reporter, um, as, as if someone had just beat me up real bad. And so the safari adventure park was very apologetic. <laughs> you think? Like, how do you, how do you say that to someone? You know, you pull them out of the water. Um, my bad. Sorry, you know. Whoopers. <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't, it's not going to go over well. They're obviously covering his medical bills and some other things. Um, and of course, this guy, Mike, he's like, with the news report, he's like, just use my first name. <laughs> I don't want anything else going out. I don't want anybody to know. But, but you know, that's the thing. We, we, we put confidence in things that seem to deserve confidence, only to find out that they fail. They fail. And, and certainly that happens in other places as well. I, I think it, for, for us as, as American 21st century people, we typically will do that by placing our confidence in ourselves. That's, there, there's a whole kind of self-confidence movement. There's this thing. I mean, it's, um, someone was looking at some surveys that were done comparing the, the 1950s, some Gallup polls that were done then, versus more recent years. And back then, the, the, the question was asked, are you a very important person? And back in the 50s, about, about 12% of people said, yes, I'm a very important person. And then uh, by the time you get to more recent years, about 80% now say, oh, I'm, I'm a very important person. I'm really important. I mean, that's the thing. We, you know, we do kind of the self-confidence thing. Um, writer David Brooks was also citing uh, the way in which, uh, you know, Americans these days, we, we rank about 25th in the world for, for math proficiency. So worldwide, we're about 25th. And yet, uh, when Americans are asked on these surveys, are you really good at math? An overwhelming majority say, yes. Yes, I am. And so David Brooks makes the point, really what this shows us is that we're number one in the world at thinking that we're really good at math. You know, that's kind of... But that's, you know, self-confidence, right? We, we kind of put it on ourselves and we, we think we've got it together. There's almost like a pressure to do that these days, too. You've, you've, got it, you've got it, you've got to have it together and you've got to be able to put the weight of whatever it is on your shoulders and you're going to pull it through, you're going to carry it through. But this issue of confidence is especially critical when it comes to our relationship with God. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to, to know him, to walk with him, to live for his glory? And so what we really need, actually, in, in light of all those things, and really it, it pertains to every part of our life, we really need what, what I'd like to call gospel confidence. It's, it's confidence in the good news about Jesus. It's confidence in seeing God for who he is. It's confidence in trusting in the finished work of Christ that actually happened in time and space and history. The actual resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's, it's, it's the confidence of who he claimed to be, who he showed that he was, and who he is today as the resurrected king. And so uh, as we seek to gain that kind of gospel confidence, that really is uh, Luke's chief concern as he pens the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of Luke. And so I invite you to open to Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. You'll find it on page 43 there in the, in the Bible on the chair rack in front of you. And, and Luke does not identify himself in the passage we're looking at this morning uh, so you might be going, well, how do we know it's Luke? Well, there's several things that would indicate that. One is several of the we passages that we would find uh, in the book of Acts, for example, uh, are best understood as coming from the friend or the companion of Paul. 
And Luke and Acts actually go together. If you look at it, and we'll talk about this more at another time, but if you look at the way Luke unfolds and then concludes, Acts is essentially part two of Luke. So we really could call the book of Luke the book of Luke-Acts. And so uh, Paul's writings refer to Luke as one of his co-workers. Uh, Paul also identifies Luke as, quote, the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. So Luke was a doctor, And in this section we find ourselves in today, this prologue, uh, it's very similar in length and in style to first century scientific writings. So we would see that kind of correlation there. And so uh, Luke, you know, the Gospel of Luke has a very particular style. He mentions individuals a lot. You got to love that. So he talks about Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Martha and Zacchaeus and Cleopas and and the women who anointed Jesus' feet and in the parables of the Gospel of um, you know, in Jesus' parables, he, he stresses actual, sometimes, identities or names. Um, his also, his gospel is, an, uh, uh, the way he writes and the way he deals with people, he's seeking eyewitnesses. And he's getting stories and accounts from people who are actually there. He's, he's doing the work. And, uh, and we find that, uh, really, his gospel transcends what would be culturally typical in the first century, which, namely, the, the, the neglect of women. Uh, Luke's gospel account uh, uses the testimony of the women around Jesus constantly. So he, we, we get information from Mary, Elizabeth, Anna, Martha, her sister Mary, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, the widow of Nain. And, and so Jesus' works and interactions with these uh, women are featured in the Gospel of Luke. We also see Luke's heart for babies and children. So the stories of the infancy of John and Jesus Uh, He gives information about Jesus' boyhood. We only find that here in this gospel account. And and then we also see an emphasis on on, on how Luke had a heart for the poor. And so he portrays Jesus uh, and and that dimension of Jesus' life and ministry where the gospel to the poor and the blessing of the poor was a part of Christ's heart and work as a shepherd. And so we, we look at that and we see a lot of these different things that would show us, yeah, this is penned by Luke for sure. Um, and the companion of Paul, the, the, the one who is a soft-hearted doctor of souls, you might say, and, and that heart that he has, the prayer would be as we embark upon this gospel account, that that kind of flows into us as well. That we would have that same kind of heart. That we would walk in the, in the same way, with the same focus. And so uh, in this prologue, in the beginning of Luke, he's introducing us. He's going to introduce, introduce us to the, his purpose in writing. So um, in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Let's pray. Lord, we look to you and ask that you would open our hearts. We pray that your spirit would work amongst us to teach us what he's penned here, that we would become the men and women you want us to be, that we would walk in a way that glorifies you, that we would love the things that you love, that we would hate the things that you hate. 
that we would be lights in a dark world, um, that we would uh, be thrilled by the truth of the gospel, and that we would be transformed by you. So we look to you to accomplish this amongst us, and we give you thanks in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So I referred before to, to, to gospel confidence, and certainly we would see that in verse 4, that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. That's, that's why he's writing. That's what we need in this, this time of our lives especially. And so we're going to see as we look at this passage that gospel confidence comes from several things. And the first would be this. The gospel confidence comes from the full and finished work of God. That's what it comes from. And we find that in verse 1. And notice he's saying, many have undertaken to compile an account of these things. Lots of people were writing. And, and Luke isn't disparaging any of those writings. But what he's saying is they were writing about certain things that in fact happened. Um, he, as many have put together different accounts of the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, he's saying, I'm now going to do the exact same thing, but I'm drawing up this account, which means to really organize. It means to take and, and place in a cohesive way a lot of these different things that have been written, that have been put down, that people are talking about. And Luke's saying, I'm going to take all of this now and I'm going to take it and put it in a cohesive order. And... Uh, and it's very interesting. You'll notice he's compiling an account. Uh, and, and that is interesting because there's a lot of things that have been compiled and yet there's one account. Uh, that word is singular there. And so the idea would be there's not many accounts. There's only one gospel narrative. There's just one. A singular one. And, and the beauty of the gospel and the different gospels we have uh, you know, passed on to us through the centuries is that they are looking at the same event from different angles. So some people have asked that, you know, why, why does the account of Matthew and Mark, they have different nuances than Luke would, and then John, of course, is even different than the first three. What's going on? And it, it very much is the, the way eyewitnesses work. Uh, if you're on a traffic corner, for example, and you see some sort of collision, if you're standing on one corner, you see it from one angle, someone on the other side is going to see it from a different angle, you get in the courtroom and you talk about it, there's different nuances that you're going to see. If anything, the, the, the nuances of difference between the gospel accounts actually give them more credibility. They weren't just made up. They don't try to polish things over. They're legitimate, realistic, eyewitness accounts. And so... Luke's saying there's, there's, there's really one account, one gospel narrative, several sources. Of, of what? And notice it says, of the things accomplished among us. That's a beautiful phrase. Because we find that this salvation comes, how? As a direct intervention from God. It comes from him. It's validated by Scripture, but, but the, the things that were fulfilled among us is, is not simply, Luke isn't saying, hey, I've got a bunch of ideas I'm going to give you, or, or really, he's not even saying, I'm going to give you my personal testimony. He's not saying that. Instead, he's saying, no, these are events, and the way the phrase works here, these are events that have been brought to completion among us, which, of course, begs the question, who's bringing them to completion? That'd be God. God did this. saying, I didn't do it. I'm passive. God's active. This is God's working. He's accomplishing this thing called salvation. And so the concrete, beautiful, saving acts of God have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
And, and, and the gospel isn't sort of some kind of moral proclamation, and, and, and it can't be reduced down to some sort of abstract sort of philosophical teachings or truths. It's not something that Luke can take credit for. It's not something that any of the other witnesses can take credit for. No, instead, this, this verb is, is in the passive voice, and so it means that God himself has fully accomplished this thing. God did it. Not us. And so we're going to see in this account, we need to respond to what God did. We respond, but God is the one that brings it to pass. God has accomplished salvation. And so we need to receive that salvation and we need to rejoice in it. And we need to give credit where credit is due. Don't we? That's important. I heard uh, recently another thing on, on chat GPT. Um, by the way, full disclaimer, not any ounce of this sermon has been prepared using chat GPT. <laughs> All right? It's like I got to say that every week now, right? <laughs> and by the way, it might be better. Okay, I'm sorry. You get what you get. I mean, you know, that's... But that's, that's a part of the problem, right? Is now people are saying, well, I, you know, I use ChatGPT, but I, I use it, you know, the way I use a hammer, I don't drive a nail in using my hand. I use a hammer. It's a tool. I still drove the nail in. But the problem is uh, ChatGPT is taking things to a completely new level because now the human participation in whatever it's creating is essentially this. I asked the best ChatGPT questions ever. You know, I didn't compose anything. And, and the thing I was listening to, listening to was actually about pastors and chat GPT. And do we use it or not? And I'm like, hello, why are we asking the question? No. But, but it was a good discussion. And, and really, you know, you find, you find in the scriptures, you know, what, what is a, a pastor called to do? Um, they didn't bring this up on the podcast, but one, one thing I thought of was if you look at the end of Ecclesiastes, what does it say? The preacher. What did the preacher do? He, he assembled or put together from research and from reading words of wisdom to present them in a, in a beautiful, appetizing way is kind of the, I'm paraphrasing it, but that's essentially what it's saying. So what is part of this whole thing of preaching and, and all, it's reading, gathering, and then expressing with words. What does chat GPT remove from the equation? Uh, your need to read at all or express anything with words. It just, Pulls, pulls that out completely. Um, educators are facing the same dilemma. But, um, but that's just it. If someone stands up and, you know, they preach this thing or whatever or write this thing for a class and then say, yeah, I did that, I don't think it's giving credit where credit's due. You know, let's give credit to the algorithm. Nice algorithm. Good job. But that's about as far as it can go. In the same way here, what's been accomplished among us? The gospel the good news, salvation, the reconciliation of sinners like all of us to a holy, holy, holy God. How was that accomplished? By God. We're passive. He's active. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But, and by the way, that should give us gospel confidence, shouldn't it? It's not, if all of this was made up by me, but we're in trouble, folks. If all of this was dependent upon you, I'm in trouble. 
No, we have confidence because of the full and finished work of God. And that's where, where gospel confidence comes from. But, but not just that. Gospel confidence comes from the full and finished work of God in history. The full and finished work of God in history. We see that in, in verse 2 and in the beginning part of verse 3. You'll notice, he says, they were handed down to us. What? These things of the gospel, these things of the good news about Jesus. They didn't originate with me, didn't originate with you. They were handed down by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So, so this account comes from eyewitnesses. People who were there, and I, I referenced that earlier. You know, if you were watching an event, you would see it from different angles. But, but in the first century, Hellenistic historians believed that the writing of history required either being an eyewitness or having close association with or access to an eyewitness. That was a given at that time. And so the eyewitnesses that Luke relies upon um, are those that were there from the beginning or the first. And, and that's interesting because... Um, Many weeks ago, we were talking about what was an apostle, what were some of the uh, qualifications for an apostle. And that phrase, uh, uh, being a witness from the beginning, actually comes up in Acts 1, 22, when, when the, the, the 12 are gathered, or the 11 are gathered, I should say, and they need to select the 12th. That was a criteria for an apostle, someone who was there from the beginning. And very likely the beginning here is referring to uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So from the baptism that Jesus received from John to when Jesus was taken up. And that's what, what Acts one twenty two says. So from the first carries that kind of that same idea. These are, these are eyewitnesses to Jesus' earthly ministry. But notice, they weren't just eyewitnesses. And it's very um, beautiful how these two things are put together. They're eyewitnesses, notice, and servants of the word. That's coupled together into one idea. Why would that be important? Well, let's face it. There were plenty of eyewitnesses of Jesus and his ministry and his work, but many didn't believe. Just being an eyewitness alone doesn't qualify one to be a part of this particular group of people. Think of it. You know, Pilate saw. He didn't believe. Uh, Antipas saw. He didn't believe. The Sanhedrin, several individuals, they all saw Jesus of Nazareth, but that didn't cause them to change at all. No, it's someone who sees and repents, believes, and serves. And so these, these who, who were eyewitnesses and served, they, they, were, they were those who came by faith to Jesus. They believed in him. And so it refers to a transformed life. And this also shows us something else, too. This, this gospel, notice the way it's described is these eyewitnesses are eyewitnesses and servants of the word of the testimony, of the gospel, of the truth of the gospel. And so the gospel, in a sense, isn't something that's possessed by the eyewitnesses. No, instead, the gospel is over and above those who hold to it, and those who hold to it believe and serve that message. So rather than the, the gospel being this thing where it's, it's mine and I hold on to it and I put it in my pocket, no, it's no, the gospel, I am under the gospel, I have received the good news of the word, I have received that truth, and now I am serving. 
And to be an eyewitness is to serve. So the, the gospel has mastery over us and we serve that message of truth from God because we serve the word himself, Jesus. So the gospel points to a person. <laughs> it isn't just a message. It points to a person, to Jesus himself, the word incarnate. And we submit to him, we follow him, we love him, and in so doing, we carry out his message. So eyewitnesses are the source of, of, of this. That's how we would see it's in history. But notice that also, it's not simply the eyewitnesses. These are eyewitnesses that have been thoroughly investigated. Look at verse three in the beginning. Luke says, I, I, it seemed fitting for me to, inve- I've investigated everything, notice, carefully from the beginning. There's that same phrase. So from that point of Jesus' public ministry until his ascension, I've looked into that time frame, he's saying, thoroughly. And, and uh, Luke has, a, has a great qualifications to, to be that person. Why? Well, because of his proximity to the Apostle Paul. He's talking with Paul. He's traveling with Paul. Those parts of Acts, when you see the word us, you're like, wow, Luke was right there. He saw it all happening firsthand. But not only that, he also talked to different people at different times who were a part of this account. And we're, we're going to see that. Uh, I was talking to a friend this week, and, and he brought that up. You know, when, when we get to the point where um, the Mary is, is, is visited, Mary and Joseph are visited by uh, the Magi, by the shepherds. And what does it say? And Mary treasured all these things up in her heart. And you think, well, how did Luke know that? Now, certainly the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write this, yes. But in light of the investigation, you know what? He talked to Mary. What was that like for you? What was going on? And we find other portions of his account where we're going to see how people felt. And and, and you can see these discussions happened. He he, he followed up. He, he, He brought himself next to not only the events, but he brought himself next to the people involved in the events. And he didn't just bring themselves next to the people involved in the events. He then interacted with them and investigated and found out what was that like. So there's a lot of personal experiential information that comes from Luke's account. And we're going to gain a lot from that. And, and, then, and then we also want to see, again, this idea of, of confidence coming because of this, um, you know, gospel that, that is the full finished work of God in history. You got to realize he didn't just receive it at face value. He investigated. He looked into it. And, and I think we learned something about um, how we deal with our own lives from, from this concept in this portion of the passage. Uh, because think about it, you know, I'm not sure about you, but there are times I think we all wrestle with doubt, don't we? I mean, don't you wrestle with doubt? Has that ever happened? All right, I'll just raise my hand. Okay, it's just me. I'm the only person in this room that wrestles with doubt. Great. But we do. We wrestle with doubt. And notice what, what's happening here is there is this call to investigate things carefully. And that's important. And uh, I, I may have shared this story with you before, but um, I remember I was, so I, I, I uh, came to Christ in my first year of college, so I'm, I'm uh, it was a little while ago. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'm in my, you know, early 20s, and, 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 you know, reading, growing, you know, a friend of ours lived up the street uh, from where Janet and I 
lived eventually. So we were married in my mid-20s. And I just remember, I remember I was meeting with him. His name's Caesar. And, and I had run into something that bothered me. Um, because, oh, yeah, so, so I was reading the genealogies. And we'll get to that later. So there's one genealogy in Matthew, and there's one in Luke. And they're different. And I, and again, I'm really, and I, I'm really young, and so I, I read it, and I'm just, and I just go, oh man, I knew it was too good to be true. I mean, you can't have one person and have two genealogies. Hello, you're, you know, people have a genealogy. That's it. And so I, I but then I start digging in a little more. And so a, a guy named Josh McDowell back then had written a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, actually, it's still a good, a good book. It's been updated a few times. But I went in there, started digging in. He's got all the, because he doesn't just list the stuff. He lists the sources too. So you can go back, footnote, and you can go farther back if you want. So I'm going in, and as it turns out, what? One of the genealogies is for Joseph. One's for Mary. And I'm like, no way. And then I'm going, why? But why would that be? And then you look into it farther, and, and you come to realize that there's actually, in the Old Testament, part of the line of David because this one king was particularly wicked that God actually says to this one, hey, no one from your bloodline will ever rule on the throne. And you're going, whoa. Guess whose genealogy that guy's in? Joseph's. Interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus is not of the bloodline of Joseph, is he? Nope. Mary's genealogy at that point, centuries before, splits off from Joseph's. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Of course, it's all total coincidence, right? No! But the point is, going in, researching, digging it out, it ends up building more confidence. So here's what I want to encourage all of us to do. When you doubt, number one, by doubting, that does not mean, oh my goodness, how dare you have that thought? Ignore it. That's not how we're supposed to respond to that. Instead, take that thing and dig Start going in. Research it. Work it through. Work it through in community with brothers and sisters. I, the last thing we all need to... I, I, why do I bring that up? Because with my friend Caesar, I talked to him about it too. I was doing the research and I was talking to Caesar. Uh, why? Because he was a good friend and together we were able to talk things through more. And so we, got, we, we need to do it in community. We need to do it together. It's not you going by yourself into a corner with a bunch of books. It's us in fellowship together working it through and growing. And so when you have those things, don't let them fester or sit there because they will kind of become infected and grow. And the beauty is the Bible is not scared, as another friend said to me. The Bible's not scared. The Bible can deal with this. The Bible is an anvil that's broken many a hammer. So just hit the thing. Go in. It can handle it. And, and what will happen is, by this investigating everything carefully, you will be able to come out with much more gospel confidence. You can sink your, foot, your feet deep into the riverbed. It's there. It's solid. And God will use that. So, gospel confidence comes from the full and finished work of God in history and lastly, received from the scriptures. We find that in the second portion of, of verse three. What is he going to do? He says, I'm going to write it out for you. 
in consecutive order. So Luke is penning this. He's writing this down. And we find that God did that. There is a collection of writings, the scriptures that God has preserved over the centuries. And certainly each of the gospel accounts, they were read in the early church, recognized by the early church, read right next to things like Isaiah and Jeremiah. It was just, they would gather. Similarly to the way uh, the, the, the synagogue worship service would, would be conducted, you recall maybe where Jesus reads a portion of, the, of Isaiah and says, this has been now fulfilled in what I just read to you. Um, that was a, so the first part, that normally happened in a gathering of, of the synagogue, that a portion of scripture would be read. What was unusual was that someone would then stand and claim, that was just fulfilled in me. <laughs> okay, that was, that was different. But reading scripture is something we're encouraged to do as well in, in, in uh, the book of First Timothy and elsewhere. So these gospel accounts were read and distributed and passed around. Uh, Theophilus, you know, is it a person? Is it a group of people? I do think it's a person. There's been a lot of discussion. His name means lover of God. So some have said, you know, if you're a lover of God, it was written to you. And that's true to an extent, but it does seem with that beginning uh, descriptor, most excellent Theophilus, this was probably someone who was a person of stature within the culture in the first century in that place. And yet, certainly as we read through the gospel account, we find that Luke is writing to everybody. This was, it was expected that this would be distributed and that this would be read amongst the churches. And so uh, this is a personal investigation by Luke. He's investigating everything, uh, all the available evidence that's, that's relevant to this historical account. He's, he's doing it from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to his ascension. And then, of course, Acts is going to take it beyond in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit in establishing the church. And, uh, and, and, and Luke does claim that there's an there's a important descriptor for the way he's doing this. He's doing it carefully. It's not haphazard. And that word for carefully could also be translated accurately. So it, it has the idea of completeness. It has the idea of exactness. And, uh, and so when we look at this, we find that, again, this, this idea of receiving the gospel from the scriptures is important. Why? Because as, as Martin Luther of the 15th century of the Reformation era, when he would talk about the word is a comfort to us in so many ways, but one of the ways is this. It's fixed words on a fixed page outside of us. And in our day, that's, that's important to recognize. So, we take comfort because this isn't about what's happening in here. This changes all the time. I mean, does that happen? It happens to me all the time. I'll, I'll have one afternoon where I am like up, things are fine. Next thing you know, I'm like, why? Why? You know, we kind of do this. We're all over the map. My wife, Janet, will look at me. She's like, how do you feel? And I'll be like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that is. It looks like a fuzzy blue-white thing. I don't know what that is. I, you know, so we, what's happening in here is hard, and it changes, and it's all over the map. Here's the beauty. This doesn't change. It's outside. It doesn't care about what's happening in here. It's external to us. It refers to an event that happened in time, space, and history, namely the accomplishment of salvation by God for sinners. Calvary. Jesus died in the place of sinners. He rose again on the third day. 
He appeared to many different people and witnesses. And in light of that, we know that our salvation is true. And so it's objective, it's outside of us. And so we have to ask that question, where are you going to go for authority in your life? What are you going to trust in? Where are you going to rest your hope? And in our culture today, especially, it's all about look within. I mean, when your kids are little, Disney starts it, you know, <laughs> you know look inside yourself. And then it kind of moves on from there. And, and now we've got entire groups of people who would say, whatever I believe inside about me, that has to be the truth. And everything outside now has to correspond to whatever's happening here. There's no hope to be found there. We make lousy foundations for ourselves. We crack, we crumble, we cave. But thankfully, the scriptures are outside of us, fixed words on a fixed page. Its meaning doesn't change. I mean, even even the timing of God, that God would have the New Testament written in Greek, it's one of the most precise languages known to, to anyone. There's a reason for that. And so, Luke's writing this objective reference point outside of you. And this word of God is the creative product of the Holy Spirit. And God's designed this word. He's provided this revelation from him as an antidote to doubt and as the source of your confidence. That's why the word of God is always going to be hammered. It's always going to be attacked. Have you noticed that? It has to be. God's revelation given to us by the Spirit for the purpose of growing in the love and knowledge of God, of walking in confidence, of being lights, of, of having our souls restored, having our joy infused, having light and truth given to us to, to, to find our way through the various trials of life, that has to be attacked. And so it is. Uh, it, it comes from, from outside the realm of what we would call of, of, you know, God's people, uh, from secularists and, 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 and various other humanists and, and all the other ists. Uh, they're all after denying the veracity and truthfulness and reliability of Scripture. Sadly, now it's coming up with people who claim to be Christians. Uh, not, not long ago on Twitter, there's a, a young man who said, I, I am a Christ follower, but frankly, portions of the Word of God are not <laughs> from God. We know that. And as it turns out, this young man who's gaining a lot of traction and a lot of popularity right now, he's actually a follower of a bunch of scholars who did stuff back in the 70s. Um, yeah, I know, the 70s, a long time ago. So the Bee Gees were doing their thing. At the same time, these scholars were getting together, and they were color-coding the scriptures and saying, this color means that Jesus probably didn't say that. This color means Jesus definitely did not say that. This other color means Jesus might have said that. And then this color means Jesus said that. And when you kind of boil it all down, believe me, lots has been written, books published, etc. When you boil it all down and look at their arguments, essentially it comes down to this. What did Jesus say? What I want him to have said. You know, there's, there's, uh, I love the, they would say, I love the, um, the greatest commandment is love. That's just, that's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? And then, but then when Jesus says, um, if you'll, you, you love me if you keep my commandments. Oh, he didn't say that. 
It's the same passage. <laughs> Don't like that one, like that one. So essentially, what, what's the criteria? Well, I just suck it out of my thumb and I blow it into the air. That's the criteria. But this young man it comes across as being very, you know, well-schooled, and he says, well, this is what I believe. Um, he talks about Jesus needing to repent of his sin. So in, in the same breath, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower, but yeah, Jesus needs to repent of his sin too. Because if he said this in scripture, I don't like that. So the Bible's always under attack, which is why we need to be people of the book. And that's why Luke's writing this. He's, look at verse four. I'm writing so that you may know. Oh, this word for know is beautiful. It's not just knowing like intellectually. It's not even the other Greek word that is for knowing experientially. This particular form of the word has a prefix on it that is intensifying. So it means to fully know relationally, personally, experientially, to actually know what? Not just the truth. Look at what it says. The exact truth. Utter precision. There are people that would say, well, that really disturbs me that you would use the word truth like it's a knowable thing. Yeah. This says it is. There is such a thing as the truth. Not to mention, that, you know, someone said that to me one time, well, there is no truth. My question is, do you think what you just said is true? Because if there isn't, we... we there's no language. Like, nothing we say means anything. No, this says, you can know the exact truth. How? Get into the scriptures. Get into the word. That's how you can know. So Luke's purpose is very clear. Notice verse four. So that you may know the exact truth. His purpose is gospel confidence. And we can have gospel confidence because it comes from the full finished work of God in history received from the scriptures. And, and, and look at how this unfolds. You can know it emphatically. You can know it with absolute certainty. Uh, that, that word even for, uh, for, for exact has the idea of safety, firmness, and stability. It's a guarantee. Did anybody feel the earthquake this, the earthquake this past week? Because I, I did. Now, again, it was fast. I don't, we have friends and family that live in other parts of you know, the U.S., and they're always like, how can you possibly live in California? There's earthquakes there. <laughs> and I'm like, look, you live with like tornadoes like torn or hurricanes. Those are terrifying, right? Think about it. I mean, a tornado, like, tornado alert. We, were, uh, we have family in Chicago, and I'm with my cousin Jenny, and we're going along, and there was a tornado alert. I'm like, should we be concerned? She's like, not really, no. I'm like, okay, well, how do you know when it's bad? You know, we're driving. She's like, well, you know, when the sky gets kind of dark, and then it gets kind of a little bit of a green tint, uh, kind of like that. <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> Thanks. Let's go. But so, with an earthquake, it's sort of like this. It happens, and afterwards you're like, huh, I'm alive. I survived. Great, you know? It, there's none of this, like, foreboding, like, you know, pre 
storm, fear. It's just it's over, and you're either still here or you're not. You know, that's great. Um, but this idea of stability, he's saying no earthquake can sever or break up or destroy or cause anything to shift out of place at all. That's how solid this exact truth is. That's just embedded in that term that he's using. It's solid. You can depend on it. One thing I love about this gospel, too, there's a lot of singing in it. There's a lot of music. We're going to hear Mary's song. We're going to hear other moments of of voices ringing out in joy from from, uh, different people in the account. Uh, there's, There's ways in which every part of us as people is addressed. You know, the historian here is going to give us confidence that this is a historical reality. The theologian is, of Luke, as he works in that way, is going to cause us to see God's love and God's grace in a deeper way. Uh, his care for people, as I've noted earlier, is going to show us his love for people and how Jesus cared for people and how Jesus ministered to those around him because of his unfailing love for all especially for sinners like us. But I think also the musical portions, as we hear those things sing out, it's going to cause us to sing too. So may God just be glorified as we embark upon this journey together. And may we come away from our time in this book with deeper, stronger, fuller gospel confidence. Because... The reality is, it's true. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this time. We pray, Lord, that we would live in a way that reflects ongoing growth in our confidence in the gospel. Not because of us. Thank you that's what you've accomplished in history, attested to by your word. So we pray, Lord, that as we grow, that you would be glorified and that others would come to know you, the Savior, the King, the Risen One. We praise you for this. Amen.